Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, Israel and Hamas at war again after the surprise attack against Israel. Chaos in the House as Republicans try to figure out who their next speaker will be. Some in Congress think it ought to be Donald Trump. Donald Trump? Seriously? Honestly? How did aid to Ukraine end up being a litmus test for the right wing in Congress? A judge rules Alabama's gerrymandered congressional districts have to be changed. Lots to unpack here, so let's start. We'll begin with the Hamas attack on Israel and the Israeli response. I don't think Western journalists have a clue why Hamas chose to mount this action at this time. And in fact, I've seen a few journalists try and explain it, but they really don't know. Mainly because many of them, not all of them, but many of them are actually billeted nowhere near where all this is going on. Now, there are some, to be honest and to say, uh, give credit where credit is due. There are some journalists who are close to the action, but there are also journalists that Western media picks out who are as far away as Singapore trying to talk about this. Now, why Hamas did it? I don't know. I've seen some statements from the Palestinian Authority and other people, but they don't really give uh, a coherent or a cohesive explanation as to why it is taking place when it's taking place. Now, what is a surprise, though, is the fact that Israeli intelligence, among the best in the world, or so we're told, had no clue that this attack was coming. Another new wrinkle is the taking of hostages by Hamas and a formal declaration of war by Israel. We also know the Israelis are preparing for a protracted struggle that they have already declared is war. It would appear as though that initial attack and rockets launched from Lebanon by Hezbollah have served the purpose of uniting the Israeli people behind the leadership of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And keep in mind, up until now, the Israeli public has not been all the way in his corner. My guess is they will be now. As we go into this week, the number of dead on both sides is well over a thousand and continues to climb. And rest assured, it will get worse before it gets better. The response from Israel's allies has been predictable. President Joe Biden has pledged unwavering support. Most Western countries have said variations on that same theme. Several Arab states, including Saudi Arabia, have called for a de-escalation of hostilities without specifically faulting Hamas, and that's significant. Beyond that, we need to ask ourselves, what does Hamas seek to accomplish with this attack? Is it to drive Israeli settlers out of disputed territory? If so, it probably will not be successful. The one thing we do know is that civilians on both sides will die the longer this conflict goes on. That brings up the question, who is an honest broker both sides trust to negotiate an end to the fighting? Certainly no country in the West, Hamas doesn't trust any of them, least of all the United States. Beyond anything else, this attack and response pains me greatly. The war between Israel and the Palestinians has gone on far, far too long. 
And this latest attack is the worst in 50 years, in a half century. That's something to contemplate. There is, of course, another war going on, the one between Russia and Ukraine. It was a while ago, and I, you know, I have to be honest here. I don't always like to say I told you so, but it was a while ago that I told you that there could come a time when lawmakers and even the American public would tire of this financial support the U.S. has given Ukraine without seeing a decisive result. It looks like that time has come. With all the chaos taking place around deposing the spineless one, Kevin McCarthy, as Speaker of the House, one thing is clear. There's a small yet determined group of hard-right Republicans who don't want to continue funding the Ukraine-Russia war. During last week, they managed to strip away billions of dollars in military and humanitarian aid out of the stopgap bill to keep the government going. In fact, opposition to Ukrainian aid, according to the New York Times, has become a litmus test for the hard right. This has bled into the ugly fight to replace McCarthy in that two contenders have divergent views on that aid. One is for it. One is against it. This bet has exposed the very real question of whether the Ukraine's vaunted counteroffensive is actually working. Hate to say it, told you that before too. We've talked about that, and the conventional wisdom is that the counteroffensive, which was announced with a great deal of fanfare, seems like it's kind of stalled at best. There is the risk that if American aid is actually cut off, the Russians would end up being the long-range beneficiaries. I don't know how much ammunition, I don't know how many tanks, I don't know how many rockets, I don't know how much the Ukrainians actually have, but if aid is cut off, eventually their munitions will run out. Now, the reason for this right-wing opposition is a little cloudy much like the rationale for the Hamas attack on Israel, half a world away. Up next, the GOP creates a circular firing squad, getting rid of Kevin McCarthy without any plan going forward. And to top this off, they blame the Democrats. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Glad you're with us. For the first time in American history, a Speaker of the House has been deposed. Now, there have been other speakers, previous speakers, who've been eased out the door by some of their constituents or some of their colleagues, I should say. Uh, But this is the first one who has actually been deposed. Kevin McCarthy should have seen this coming and taken steps to shore up his position. Yet the fact is, nobody... Nobody seemed to trust him, certainly not Democrats. Perhaps the pithiest response to McCarthy's ouster came from Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez of, you guessed it, New York City. He took decisions, and now he's facing the natural consequences of those same decisions. I am not his mom, and my job is not to put 
pool noodles around hard corners for Republicans. End quote. Indeed, now comes the hard part for Republicans, figuring out who to make speaker and the general direction of the House GOP beyond saying no to everything. Maybe this is their way of showing their undying fealty to their fearless leader, one Donald J. Trump. After all, there were a few Republican congresspeople who posited the notion that Trump himself should become the next speaker, and they were prepared to bend whatever rules they needed in order to make that happen. Sad, isn't it? They're seemingly unaware of the fools they're making themselves on the world stage. America is, after all, the bastion and beacon of democracy around the world. How do people think we look to both allies and enemies around the globe? To the Chinas of the world, and by the way, to the Chinas of the world, this foolishness reinforces the notion that democracy cannot work and it will only be a matter of time before it collapses on itself. The 2020 election certainly was a stress test for this form of government. It almost didn't get through it. Yet it goes even deeper than that if the polls are to be believed. Americans see their faith shaken in institutions as diverse as the Supreme Court, the police, educational institutions, and many more. A separate survey revealed that almost half of Americans don't believe democracy is working well in this country. Don't let some of our adversaries get a hold of that particular poll. Is this opening the door for autocratic rule, an imperial presidency that allows the shooting of shoplifters and executing the former chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for being a traitor? Those words have actually come out of the mouth of Donald Trump. Or is it the simple fact that the public no longer trusts its institutions? Whatever it is, as they say in the street, it is not a good look. The tradition, and I should say the traditional way, of getting rid of corrupt or just plain bad politicians is at the ballot box. January 6, 2021 showed some Americans are prepared to use another method to change or maintain leadership. Next year's election may be the ultimate stress test of Western democracy. Let's hope the nation is up for it. Up next, why does Joe Biden want to expand the border wall that doesn't seem to be working in the first place and he, at one time, opposed? And there's an interesting ruling on congressional lines in Alabama. You have to have a little bit of good news in this podcast. This is The Intersection. You're listening to Mark Riley. It's the only podcast where the world makes sense. Welcome back once again to The Intersection. I aired last episode by saying that our theme song, our new theme song, was by Tevin Thomas. It is by Tevin Thomas, but it is in fact by the Tevin Thomas Band, a really, really strong ensemble. Welcome back. 
if there's one thing that sours the American public about politicians, it's when they go back on their word. This happens even when circumstances, in fact, change to make them go back on their word. When he was running for president in 2020, Joe Biden called the building of a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, quote, not a serious policy solution. Well, that was then, and this is now. Biden has changed course and has announced an expansion of the Trump-built border wall, as well as a deportation of thousands of Venezuelans who entered the U.S. unlawfully. He's obviously reacting to criticism from both Republicans and some Democrats that the flow of migrants to the U.S. has become unsustainable. It's also unlikely that what he's doing will mollify the Republicans. They don't, nothing short of either his resignation or impeachment will mollify certainly the hard right of the Republican Party. It may have, on the other side of the equation, it may have the effect of infuriating immigrant advocacy groups who might find what he's doing to be draconian and hypocritical. Sending administration officials to Mexico to meet with that country's president likely will not help all that much. And and I'm, I, I'm actually baffled by this. What does Joe Biden think will happen if Venezuela refuses to repatriate the migrants that he deports? Is there much incentive to cooperate with the U.S.? I wouldn't think so. I've always believed that the best way to deal with migration, lawful or otherwise, is to fix the nation's broken immigration system, and make no mistake, it is broken, and identify the root causes that lead people to abandon their way of life to come to a foreign country. It's not just happening in the U.S., by the way. Western Europe is also swamped with migrants, leading some right-wing officials there to argue the only way to fix things is to bend long-standing rules about immigrant treatment. One thing people are going to confront, however, parts of the global south are little by little becoming uninhabitable. Again, we talked about this before. That's due to climate change. And to my utter amazement, I actually saw a commenter, a commentator, I should say, on television, finally, finally saying something about migration and climate change. People in those countries, in the global south, will be looking to migrate to a better climate, places where they can feel and where they can feel, first of all, not starving, not in the middle of droughts, not in the middle of flooding, not in the middle of the things that are plaguing the global south. And of course, these migrants want to be able to work and feed their families. This is a looming humanitarian problem that's already a crisis in some places. Solutions based on demonizing migrants simply won't work. With all the bad news afoot, we should end this episode on some good news. The state of Alabama has been ordered by a federal court to use a congressional map that could result in the state electing a second black representative for the first time in its history. This is some deep stuff. Alabama has been steadfast in resisting 
drawing congressional maps that may have the effect of empowering black people, who, by the way, are around 25, 26% of the population, and they have a single congressional representative. That's called gerrymandering, for folks. This, by the way, is not new. The stakes are particularly high now, though, with the GOP controlling the House by a razor-thin margin. The election of a black Democrat in a second Alabama district could be seismic, not just for Alabama, but for the balance of power in the House itself. There's already one black representative out of seven districts, six of which are controlled by Republicans. That black district was itself created by a lawsuit back in 1992. Now, we ought to give credit to the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, which helped residents in Alabama sue the state. Ironically, Alabama has gone to the Supreme Court twice over voting rights issues, and they've lost both times. Wes Allen, the state secretary of state, says they'll use the new map for next year's elections, but he also said the state would appeal. Alabama is one of a number of states, mostly in the South, that have made voting rights a minefield for black voters. It's almost as if the civil rights movement never even happened. That thin margin of Republicans, the margin that they now hold the House or hold in the House, could be evaporating before their very eyes. And in my judgment, that would be a good thing. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.